All right, hello everyone. Crystal Party here. I'm here with my good friend Dan Cortine, and we're excited to have you back with us this week with A Father's Love Healing Through Heartache. Uh, this week we're going to get into some more of our stories. We're going to talk about the first week after our sons passed, Mason and Jameson. Uh, this week is going to be raw and real like all the other weeks. We're really going to get into some very deep, sensitive topics. Uh, just a heads up, we'll be talking about some mental health issues and some things that went through both dance in my mind as the first week went on and how we dealt with those. So uh, we just want to give everyone a heads up with that. Uh, but we're excited to continue these stories and share our experiences with everyone. And hopefully you will get something out of it and uh, understand how to either A, deal with the grief if you're dealing with the grief yourself, or B, help a friend that might be dealing with grief uh, from the loss of a loved one. Uh, with that, Dan, how are you doing? Good to see you again. You too, Chris. It's good to be here. And thank you to everybody who's taken the time to listen to our stories and, and yeah, hopefully get something out of it that can help. So as we're, we continue on, uh, Dan, I'm going to let you start this week. Why don't you just jump right in and talk about that first week and how things went and how everything kind of played out and progressed for you. Well, thanks, Chris. I know last week I brought up a few points of things that happened immediately the day that Jameson died and within the day or two after where uh, we had some of Erica's best friends came out and they cleaned our house. Uh, they bought all the paper products. I talked about that. That was a huge help. The meals that Chris and I both talked about, those are enormously helpful to have our friends that brought us the paper supplies and everything. So again, we didn't have to worry about dishes or anything. Huge helps. Uh, the other thing that really, really helped us was the day that Jameson actually passed when I was making all the phone calls to everybody. Our uh, friend in Raleigh kept telling me over and over again, Dan, I feel like I need to come see you. I need to come see you. I feel like I need to be there. And I don't know if this is a guy thing or just a human thing, but I kept telling him, no, I'm okay. I don't, I'm okay. I don't, I, he, he, they're five hours away. And my, my biggest thing was I just, I felt guilty that somebody would drive five hours to see me. I felt selfish and I didn't feel like I was that important. So I kept telling him, no, don't worry about it. Stay home with your family. Even though deep down in my gut, I wanted him to hang up the phone and leave right now. Cause yeah, I wanted people with me. If you're listening, you know who you are. Thank you. Cause that meant the world to me. But what I didn't know and what made a big impact is that uh, he did actually arrange to make a trip out here. And the day that he was to arrive, we were, Eric and I were out doing whatever. And we, when we pulled into the driveway, we saw his car and I was, I was excited because my buddy was here to help. What I didn't know is that he had made the phone calls and arranged for my four best friends to come with him. So not only had he come out here, he had brought the four most important people in my life with him. And they were completely unselfish. They were there for me and they had no other objective. And they, they had all been 
uh, behind our house. We have a little stream behind our house, and they'd been hanging out there. And I saw, or I saw the main guy first, and then one at a time they came up walking around the corner, and I, I just lost it. It was such a beautiful, beautiful gesture that they all gave up their time to come see me, and that their wives, they all have wives and kids, and just everybody that was involved in that selfless act just made an enormous difference in those few days. They ended up staying for a couple days and just loved on me, and they served me. They, We got to go out to dinner that night and just be distracted from the pain and the misery that I was in. We hung around, we just, we drove around town, I got to, we just, they distracted me from all the pain and agony I was in. The The other part that worked out beautifully, because as I tell that story, I'm like, man, what a jerk husband I sound like. But we also had another couple that decided they were going to come out, who were also uh, some of our best friends. So uh, they came out, it was both a husband and a wife. So. Erica ended up having, over the first few days, she ended up having three different friends come from the Raleigh area to visit. I ended up having five different friends come immediately. So in addition to our church family that came the day of, every day of the next three or four, whatever it was, we had some of our best friends there. And that is one of those things that I would encourage you if you know somebody who is grieving I talked last week about inserting yourself in a way that if you ask us what do we need, we're not going to answer that because we don't have a clue what we need. Gently insert yourself, use your time and your talent and your abilities to find something that you can do that makes our life easier. And this was one of those initial things that this, this friend of mine just kept telling me. Dan, I need to come. I need to come. And no matter how hard I fought it, he just knew that he needed to come. And even if I didn't open the door, he was prepared to stand outside the door or just be in town so that if I had a moment where I needed to pick up the phone, I could do that. And he was there within a couple minutes. So that, I think, is my first piece of advice to anybody that's around somebody grieving. Again, insert yourself. Uh, we... We need it. We don't know what to ask for. We don't know when we need it, but it sure was a nice thing to have them there to distract me. So Chris, what about you? Uh, that first day or two after, was anything big for you? Uh, yeah, I think I, I talked about it a little bit. You know, obviously we had very different circumstances and with me being in the military and um, we wanted Mason to be uh, buried back in Buffalo with me being in the military and moving all the time, it was difficult to decide where are we going to actually put him. We want to make sure that he's, his site is taken care of and people visit. So, uh, you know, once we finally decided, yes, we're going to have him buried in Buffalo, we, we had to, you know, start making those arrangements and those plans of what we were going to do. And, um, you know, that was, that was difficult. The flying home aspect was a difficult logistical thing. I know I talked about that a little bit last week. But people, like you said, they inserted themselves, my military family, they inserted themselves and really took care of me in, in that time. 
in terms of figuring out our flights. So when we were all going to go home, figuring out, uh, you know, arranging the flights so that way we could be on the same plane as Mason all the way to Buffalo. You know, my fire chief had arranged for uh, a police escort off the base and all the fire trucks and ambulances on base uh, lined up and they saluted us as we were uh, leaving. And, you know, that's a big honor. It's It means a lot to me knowing that they cared so much because we left so early in the morning, but they also came out and did that for us. On top of that, uh, one of the commanders on the base called the airport and arranged for us to go right through TSA super quick, mm -hmm. super easy. Tickets were easy. Everything was easy. We got right to our gate without any issues. And, you know, those are the little things, like you said, of people inserting themselves to help us to really make it easier overall. And that, that means the world. It really helped out. You know, I didn't have any friends visit because we went to Buffalo. So after Mason passed, we were in Buffalo within a day or two. Oh, actually, it might have been two or three days after Mason passed, we were flying home with him. You know, and setting up the, the funeral home and, you know, dealing with all those things. So it was it was definitely a different experience for me compared to what you went through. But I can see how, uh, you know, once I was home, we had family all around us helping us the whole time. Um, Amanda's family and my family, everyone was there for us for whatever we needed. Uh, and I know if I asked for anything, anyone would have done it in a second without thinking twice about it. So I'm glad we talked about that and how, how people, you know, we keep stressing that to everyone. I want to stress that some more. Don't be afraid to, you know, assert yourself and say, hey, I'm here. Here's what I'd like to do for you. Sometimes, I know for me, there were days after Mason passed, that first week was really hard where I really didn't want to do anything. And I think even if anyone tried to convince me to do something, I probably wouldn't have. And I think that's going to be situational for everyone. I don't know. What do you think, Dan? I, I agree. That's situational. I think, again, just listening to you talk, uh, for those of us, those of you who are listening, when Chris and I talk, there's so many things that are so darn similar, and, but there's also so many things that are so do, so different, and that makes it a no-win situation for everybody trying to help somebody that's grieving because you never know. Something you say or do, we've talked about it in other episodes, anything you say or do could trigger a wonderfully thankful appreciative reaction or it could trigger another world war uh, and we 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 know that you're in that situation we wish we could just say hey here's what I need and make it nice and simple for you but again we don't know what we need ourselves I love listening to Chris talk about his friends and his colleagues his work family of all the things that we just heard that they did, as we talked about last week, just to take something else off his plate. What an awesome idea for your friend to get you through TSA. Uh, for people to just sit there and envision in the pain and agony that Chris and Amanda and the kids must have been in, to not have to stand in an airport security line for an hour or two, whatever, and just to make what's already a, a not very fun uh, procedure to make it much less painful. 
I have to imagine things like that really, really helped you guys. Yeah, they definitely did. Uh, you know, the airport, I don't talk, I haven't talked about it much, but it was actually a really difficult experience uh, because when Mason would put him to the plane, I mean, he's, he's in his casket that we picked out for him, but it's all boxed up and boarded up for protection, obviously. They're protecting, you know, his body and they're protecting the casket. And But it's hard because, you know, there's layovers between flights and you have to think about, your son's body is literally uh, now that it, it was in it. It was by itself. It was in a uh, um, besides the box that it was in. It was also in a, a rolling cart up on its own. But it's out in the tarmac. It's by itself, and you know that your son's body is in there. And the difficulty of me just sitting in an airport chair at the window, staring at that for three hours or two hours, waiting for our flight. You know, I can't explain that to people. There's just no, you know, or, or getting on the plane for the first time. That's the first time. We've flown a lot being a military family. And us getting on the plane without Mason and knowing that his body was under the plane, the difficulty of just thinking about that, the difficulty of watching them take the box out. Now, I will give it to the crews. I was very appreciative of how gentle they were with loading him. I watched the whole thing before I get on the plane, and I watched them take him off. Both times they did a great job. Nobody, uh, you know, you always hear the horror stories of baggage and how they yeah. throw that stuff around, but they did a great job, and I was very appreciative of that. Yeah. And I think you're hitting on one of the main points that we've talked about that we're going to, I think this entire podcast for the next whatever number of years we do it, just for people to hear the mental health issues that we have and the things that we have to think about. Uh, some of them are are instances and some of them are things that they're just continuous and we deal with them every single day so we just we hope that people can understand and again that if we're not the most social people or the happiest people in the world at some point it's probably a safe assumption that we're having some kind of a flashback or a memory or a trigger that it's just not putting us in a good spot at that moment. And we ask for your understanding and, and patience through all that. That's for sure. I, uh, actually t today was just one of those days for me. I, uh, I worked a shift last night where I slept over at the fire station, you know, and I was on a fire truck in case we had an emergency. And, uh, you know, I, I used to love that. I used to be what I lived for. I loved that part of the job. I loved, um, you know, I just love being at the fire station no matter what. It's my whole life besides my family. And I actually don't like it at all anymore. The downtime, the free time, the it lets my mind wander to places that I don't want it to wander. Whereas when I'm home with Amanda and the boys, I'm able to be constantly distracted. There's always one of the boys needs help with something or we're doing something as a family, spending time and like you said, those mental health issues are brought up more and more uh, when I'm on, when I'm on my own in that in that situation for sure. Yeah. So I don't know if we talked about this at all, Dan. When I know I started my first grief counseling that very first week, actually after Mason passed, and uh, I was curious about what your experience was with that. If you started that right away, and I'll tell you about my experience after yeah. that. I, I don't remember when I started mine. It was it was a few weeks. I 
I think I mentioned last week that I had some church friends that really, really came along beside me. And I felt that they were giving me as much as anybody possibly could. So that made me, comfort's not the wrong word, but comfortable uh, that I at least had that outlet to share what I was thinking in a real open and honest way. Because again, it was the right people and that I trusted and they were good listeners instead of good talkers. And so it, it took me a while. I think it was actually a few months before I went to an official therapist. And I, th I may have mentioned that I only went to her once and I walked out of there and I just felt like I wanted, I wanted to talk to men. And I felt like, again, these, these church friends were, were doing a, a, a good, not a good, a great job listening to me and just letting me be open and raw and then trying to insert a little bit of wisdom and guidance for me. So I don't, I don't have much of a story on, on official therapy. Yeah. Well, let me tell you my story then. <laughs> I uh, I started grief counseling right away that first week after Mason passed. Um, now it was virtual because we were still in Buffalo. So I actually talked to um, one of the therapists on the base I was at for mental health. And, and then we also tried a virtual family counseling one. I think you bring up a good point, though, Dan, that I really want to stress about feeling comfortable with who you're talking to. It you know, for people that are dealing with grief, if you're one of those that are listening to us and you're dealing with grief right now and you want to go to counseling, if you go to a counselor and you don't like them, there's no rule saying you have to stay with that counselor. Go find somebody you're comfortable with. Right. It took uh, Amanda, my Amanda, the boys, and myself probably two or three therapists before we finally found one we actually really liked, and we still go to him um, individually and together as a family when needed. So if you're one of those people that you think that mental health doctors, you know, you're not sure if you like them, try a few out. See what you feel comfortable with. Like Dan said, I I went to a bunch of different grief counselors. I went to a chaplain on the base. I went to the therapist on the base, and I also went to those therapists off base. I actually, even though I'm Catholic, I did not enjoy going to priests for grief therapy and here's why because a catholic priest uh does not have any children so they really can't have any kind of empathy because they really don't understand what it's like to be a parent and i, I felt that right away like i know he's trying his best but he really just doesn't get what i'm saying right now it's not making any sense to him at all right um, so you know once i found the therapist that i liked and started going on a regular basis. I still go every single week. I enjoy going because, you know, I think we're going to talk about it next. Some of the horrible thoughts that we have after these, it's important to talk about. You cannot keep them bottled up because it just eats you alive inside. Uh, so every time I go to therapy, I know it's going to be difficult and I know I'm probably going to cry. But every time I leave, I feel better. And I can't explain it. I think it's because it's working. It's helping me cope the best way I can at that moment. So I encourage you, if you're listening and you're going through any kind of grief right now from losing a loved one, uh, to consider seeking out mental health and just give it a shot. It doesn't have to be that first therapist or first doctor you go to. 
search around, try a couple, see what you feel like works for you, and uh, go that route for sure. Absolutely. So, you know, I know I've talked about a little bit. I don't know if you want me to go first, Dan, or if you want to go first. Some of the difficult thoughts we have. Yeah. Me, uh, well, those thoughts that are not natural. Yeah. Uh, and I went through that first week, and I know we talked a little that you went through too. Would you mind sharing those? Absolutely. And this is where, again, we just want to warn everybody ahead of time that there's some pretty serious things about to come this way. If 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 you have kids in the room or anything like that, you might wanna you might wanna think about that. Because we, 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 want, we want to be real so that you all can understand what's going on. I know uh, my first thought, my first major mental issue was, I mentioned it last week, at the hospital when we were told that Jameson had passed, we wanted him to be an organ donor. So we, we said our goodbyes pretty quickly and we, we really wanted to stay there and just hug our boy for a lot longer. But we knew that the longer we were there, the longer his body would be, I don't know the best way to say it, but just dying and decaying. And his organs would not be healthy for somebody else. And so we, we said our goodbyes and we went home and we, we left it up to the hospital staff and everybody to do what they needed to do. And we live in a small mountain town in Western North Carolina, it's a very small hospital that isn't even close to equipped to do anything close to an autopsy. And it turns out that they send the bodies of deceased to Winston-Salem, which is about two and a half hours away, maybe three hours away from here. And I just made the assumption that they heard me loud and clear that we wanted his organs donated and it would be taken care of and the well and and again as we've talked about before just as we start telling stories we just get other stories that pop into our heads so i hope you'll just bear with us because this takes me back when when they told me and erica that they needed to do an autopsy like we knew that we didn't do anything to Jameson to cause this. It was something totally natural. And it became clear very quickly that in addition to determining, just knowing why he passed away, there was an element of the legal side of, we've got to investigate this kid and whether or not he was murdered or beaten. And that thought that oh my god they're taking my son to an autopsy to see if i beat him to death um chris and i have talked about the 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 way we beat ourselves up badly enough just as failures of fathers because our kids passed but then we have things like this that oh my god there's somebody that actually could be considering the notion that i beat my son and that Again, just what a horrible, horrible, sick thought that is. So they took him to Winston-Salem pretty quickly that day. And it was uh, the following night. So that would, that would have been a Wednesday. So Thursday, we were kind of, we were up at Erica's father's house just being with people. And 
in the afternoon I got the phone call from the chaplain at the hospital and he told me the, that the autopsy had been returned and he uh, he shared what the cause of death was and that in itself was a, a, a relief again I, I use that word loosely but at least we found out what caused Jameson's death and we found out one of the few good things, I guess, was we found out that if, I think I shared that I had stayed up all night wondering if I should take him to the hospital or not when he was sick. And we were told in the autopsy, and then Erica was able to reach out to our Jameson's pediatrician from the Raleigh area over the next day or two. And we were told that Jameson, when he came in the night before throwing up, he was most likely already dead, even if we had taken him to the hospital right away. The chances of him surviving were very slim uh, because of what, what had taken him. Uh, so that was, again, I use the word loosely, but that was encouraging to uh, but I still, even though I have that information, I still, two years later, I still beat myself up of, I should have taken him to the hospital right away because there was a chance. It was a single digit percent chance, but at least there was a chance that maybe they would have ignored the sim flu symptoms and they would say, hey, you know what, we're gonna test and we'll, some miraculous surgery will, will save him. Uh, but again, I just think that's one of the many mental health, health issues that Chris and I will talk about, that we, it, they just haunt us forever and ever. And it doesn't matter what answers we get. There's some things that just hang around forever and then, uh, so beyond that, when I was talking to the chaplain, when he told me what had caused Jameson's death, um, we talked, we, well, again, I talked about where's his body right now, and he's like, okay, it's already back. They had already, so again, I, I, my heart, when I listen to Chris talk about his situation, it rips my heart out to think about having to f trust other people on an airline that loses luggage often to transport my son's body across the country. I can't even begin to picture what must have been going through the Lepardi's minds. And here I am on a much smaller scale but I'm I'm wondering, okay, where's my son's body right now? And the chaplain told me it was back in town. It, it was at the hospital already. So that, that was encouraging because I knew where my boy was. And he told me it was ready for the funeral home. I just needed to call the funeral home and have them pick, pick up my son. And, um, and then we got to the fact of, I'm, I asked him, what about his organs? Where, what organs were they able to save? And you could tell right away from his, he paused. And I just knew right away 
that this was not going to be what I wanted to hear. And he told me that they didn't have a refrigerated car to transport Jameson's body to Winston-Salem and back. So that, I don't know, is that, a, is that a result of living in a small town in the mountains? Is it that they forgot? Is it that they didn't care? I don't know. Could they have not have picked up the phone and gotten a refrigerated car from a hospital 40 minutes away? That's a pretty good sized hospital. Two hours away, there's a major hospital. I just, that was not what I wanted to hear that the one thing at that point in our life that could give us any hope and any joy, again, I use that word like loosely, the one thing that could have really maybe helped us was knowing that in our pain, at least some other kids maybe were saved. And that, not only did our son get ripped away from us, the that hope of helping other kids got ripped away because we don't have a darn refrigerated car. I mean, surely we could have gotten something refrigerated to transport him to save kids, and that was not made possible. And that's one of those things that I think, at least in my situation, it haunts me, it still haunts me, and it probably will forever, that every time I hear of a kid dying, and they were an organ transplant. I am thrilled to death that that happened and that kid's death was able to help other people. But then it takes me right back to just pure anger that we didn't get that opportunity. So I think, I mean, just in the first two days after, well, I guess there were two major mental issues that I was dealing with that I still have today. Chris, I'll turn it over to you. Yeah, well, uh, so, Dan, we've been talking for a while now, and that's the first time I heard those two stories. The first, the legal one, I mean, like you said, while that is, um, I cannot fathom that. It makes sense, like you said, with today's world, they have to consider everything, and that's a hard part for dads like you and I, who we take very seriously our jobs of protecting our family and protecting our children. Uh, and it's almost like another slap in the face and insult at that moment, at your worst moment in your life, and they throw that little slap in the face. While we know legally why they're doing it, we understand, wow, that, it's gotta be so painful to deal with. Um, and then, wow, the, the organ transplant, that's, I, I'm sorry you had to go through that. That is a, a horrible, horrible circumstance that you shouldn't have you would think at any hospital that they would have a game plan for that. And like you said, the fact that uh, other children could receive Jameson's organs because of what I feel like just listening to like someone didn't plan accordingly, that's a, such another insult to you and your family, and I'm sorry you had to go through that. Wow. Well, like you said, uh, talking about the hard things that go through our minds when those first couple of days go through some of the hardest things that went through my mind were uh, I think I've talked about it a couple of times you know as a father you feel like your job is to protect your family and protect your loved ones and that those first couple of nights 
uh, where Mason was at the funeral home, you know, 10 miles away, all by himself. I felt really like I failed. I felt like a failure for sure. And the sadness, of course, on top of it doesn't help. And then uh, once we finally, you know, went through the whole thing of getting Mason back to Buffalo and having his funeral, the first, the first night after his burial was the hardest for me, I think. Because uh, it really solidified for me that he, I, I knew he wasn't coming back. We know that. I know you know that, too, Dan. It's, we know they're not coming back, but there was something about him finally being buried where it, it closed the chapter of Mason being with us for us. You know, the thought of Mason being in a cemetery underground in his casket alone in the dark, like your mind's not thinking in the right mindset, if that makes sense. You're not thinking logically anymore. You're thinking, you're thinking is just completely changed at that moment. And that's the only thing I can attribute it to is, you know, a hard part, and I've talked to my therapist about it too, is, you know, the thought of myself being in his casket slowly became, I don't know why that's something that's popped up in my mind or why I've thought about it, but, you know, my therapist has said that others have thought about that as well, and it, it's, I don't know why, but that's a hard thing that I've thought about, and, uh, you know, just those difficult things in our mental health uh, that pop up you just don't want to think about it. And that's, that's one of the more difficult ones I've had to deal with for sure. You know, the fact that Mason is not coming back, obviously he's underground and I can't visit him. I can't visit him as often as I want. Now, after he passed the first two weeks that we were in Buffalo, I went to his grave every single day. I sat there, I talked with him, I wrote in a journal. I, you know, whatever I could do to get through the moment. And uh, but then man, that day of leaving, You know, that, that drive to the airport to go back to Idaho, that was a hard mm-hmm. one. You know, I'm a firm believer in God, and I believe in signs. Uh, we were driving to the airport, and right in front of me was a truck. Uh, it was a it was a construction truck, or I can't remember what kind of truck it was. But on the construction truck, as we were driving, right dead in front of me as I'm driving to the airport, it was just Mason. That's all it said was Mason. And I just felt like, you know, maybe that was a sign from Mason saying, I'm going to be okay, Dad. It's going to be okay. And um, so it was really, you know, that was a really hard moment for me. And, uh, you know, hmm. once getting back to Idaho, knowing that he was all the way back in Buffalo and the difficulty of not being able to visit him really affected me for a while. It I still think about it every day. I wish if I was in Buffalo, I know I'd probably still visit them every day. Um, but I have family uh, that, you know, Amanda's family and my family, they visit him often and check on his site, send us pictures, let me know that everything's looking okay. And that means the world to me. I, I need those things to, to keep going, to be honest. Yeah. So. And I, it does, it just rips my heart out listening to you tell that story. Uh, because, I went through, yeah, we went through the decision of what do we do with Jameson? And again, we're, we're Christians, so I I struggled with cremation. Is it biblical or not biblical? Uh, 
and or do we bury him? And I, I reached out to some, a lot of people that I trust a lot, and I decided pretty quickly that I wanted to cremate Jameson. Erica took a while, understandably so. And I think we'll talk more about it in part two of this episode, but it, again, it, it's one of those decisions that even be, having gone through it, it's hard to just figure out what in the world we would do with that. Do I, because I had the exact same thoughts that Chris did of, I don't want my son being in a hole in the ground forever, rotting away. And I, again, that's where Chris and I have talked about the sick, there's, there's some sick, sick things that go through our minds. And we, we, we think it's important to share them, to, again, to really help people maybe understand a few pieces of what we went through. And I mean, yeah, I just, do we, do we put our kid in a hole in the ground and let him rot? Or do we put him in a fire and let him burn to ashes? That's, there's not a good answer, a good choice on that one, no matter how you look at it. I think you're right. There, there's, there's no easy answer or good answer. Neither one are ideal. And, you know, you have to do what's best for your family. So, so for those that are listening that want to help out with grief, uh, I think it's just important to understand when, you know, it takes time. I mean, Dan is two years now. Mason, we've lost Mason coming up on the one-year mark next month. And legit, probably last month was the first month I felt any kind of little bit of normalcy. And it was really little, to be honest. Like, I could wake up and my first thought wasn't, well, Mason's not here. Because that was my thought every single day for the first yeah. 11 months. So those are just difficult things for people to understand that, hey, whatever you can do to help out, you know, that first month after Mason passed, it's probably the same for you with Jameson. You get a ton of help, uh, but as the the time goes on, the help becomes less and less, and that's okay. You know, I think Dan and I, Amanda, Erica, we understand people have their lives, and they're going to get back to those lives, and that's totally understandable and normal. We don't expect everyone to to deal with the grief like we have to deal with the grief. But I have an understanding of, like, me at work. If I got to close the door because I'm having a moment, mm -hmm. man, I close that door, and I'm not answering the door for anyone. I'm not doing anything at work, and that's it is what it is. And, uh, you know, Dan, I think that might have been difficult for you with being a teacher if you're having a moment. You know, you can't just say, hey, hold on, kids, I need a moment. That's not the way it works as a teacher. So I know that's yeah. probably a little more difficult on your end. This is jumping ahead for me because I took – a month and a half off whatever but that was one of the things when I did decide to return to work my my boss had already arranged it and again it's just another great example of of what people can do that there's as little a chance as anything that it can it can go wrong but my boss had already arranged it that if I had a moment no matter what it was, when it was, what caused it, whatever, I just need to call the office. And she was prepared. She had a list of people that she would call that would be in my room within a minute so that I could go, whether it was just a quick walk around the hall, 
sit in a room for 30 minutes and ball or whatever it was. She had already arranged that system and they had, in addition to the phone call, they had made a set of cards that just said, I don't remember what it said, I need help or I need a break. And I just needed to send a kid with that card and no questions asked. There was somebody in my room within a minute or two and I just went and had my moment and came back when I was ready. And it's, again, it's just one of those amazing examples of everybody can do something. It, it's not always easy to figure it out what it is, but everybody can do something to help take something off our plate or to help protect us, surround us with love or something. And, and it's not something that, again, as Chris just said, we... We, we get that after a month or two, you guys have to go back to your lives and your family. We get that. But selfishly, we still need you forever. And it, like Chris said, I'm over two years in. I still need people. Eric and I feel like we're on an island right now, pr probably the worst that we've felt in the two years. And it's just, it's just hard. So as much as possible, whatever you can do to keep supporting us, it's appreciated and it's needed. Current pandemics, uh, you know, I, something we can maybe talk about in the future. Something I'm nervous about, I've read in other grief books, is that the second and third year are actually harder than the first year. And, uh, you know, maybe that's something we could talk about in the future for sure because, you know, everything is still so kind of fresh and raw for me compared to, yeah. um, you know, you've, you've had to deal with it a little longer now. So. Uh, I think that's a, a good topic we can discuss, you know, either in part two or in the future for sure. Absolutely. For me, you know, my work was great in terms of just, you know, I went from riding on a fire truck and making important decisions affecting people's lives to no longer doing that and just working on administrative stuff for the rest of the time. So that's really kind of as a firefighter because you really want to get out there and help people and that's what your whole job is every single day is you go to uh, where people are having issues and you help them with those issues but I know I needed it and like I said it wasn't until just last month where I started riding a fire truck again occasionally one or two days a month to help out um, so uh, you know if, if you're a boss and you have a uh, employee that's going through this maybe that's something to consider how can you help lessen the load for them to uh you know move on not move on but learn to deal with their grief because it's going to take a while for sure absolutely so well yeah chris i think uh now might be a good time you want to take a quick little break yeah, that sounds good. All right. So, everybody, thanks for tuning in for this week. Um, Chris and I are going to take a quick little break, maybe gather a little bit of composure, and uh, we're going to come right back with part two of this episode in just a few minutes.